Welcome to the webinar today. Um, we'll just get started at the top of the hour. So go ahead and um, get situated. Um, I don't know if you can see in the chat, I went ahead and dropped the handout in, but I'll do that again um, right before we get started as part of our housekeeping. Thank you everyone for joining. We might just wait one more minute for folks to get connected to the webinar before we start. Okay, thank you for joining us for today's SNEB webinar uh, organized by the Research Division. My name is Rachel Dager. I'm the Executive Director of SNEB and glad you're joining us for the presentation today. Uh, we do have uh, handout slides available, so I'll drop those in the chat so you can um, download the slides and follow along. We will take questions at the end of the presentation. Uh, please type those in the question block or the chat block uh, so we can moderate questions to our presenters. Uh, when I close the webinar out today, there's a short survey and we appreciate your feedback on this session and as always ideas for future webinars. And then watch for an email follow-up. The email comes from Zoom and that should come to you before Thursday of this week uh, with a link to the recording, um, the handout, as well as the CEU certificate that you're earning for your attendance. Uh, 
Um, if for some reason it gets to be Friday and that hasn't reached you, don't hesitate to reach out uh, to the SNEB office, info at snb.org, and we'll make sure to forward that to you. Um, I'd like to go ahead and turn things over to our moderator. Uh, Dr. Hewan Gray is Associate Professor at the College of Public Health, University of South Florida. Uh, she's chair of the research division at SNEB. Her research focuses on developing and evaluating childhood obesity prevention and nutrition education programs. Thank you, Rachel. It's my pleasure to introduce the speakers today. Um, the first speaker is Megan Laud. She serves as deputy director for healthy eating research, a national program of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, which supports research on environmental and policy strategies to promote healthy eating among children. In this role, Megan manages day-to-day -day program operations, engages in collaborations with key partners, and identifies research priorities to advance program goals. Megan is a registered dietitian with a Bachelor of Science in Nutrition Sciences and Dietetics from the University of Cincinnati and a master's in public health from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She is based at the Duke Global Health Institute at Duke University. And Lindsay Miller serves as a senior research analyst for the Healthy Eating Research Program. In this role, Lindsay serves as the main program lead for all commissioned research subgrants and a content expert for special projects, assist with the review processes for HER's funding opportunities, and coordinates the HER working groups. Lindsay holds a Master of Public Health and Nutrition from Tulane University School of Public Health in uh, tropical medicine and a Bachelor of Science in Health Promotion from Appalachian State, State University. Uh, now uh, I'm turning over to Megan. Thank you so much, Juan. Um, my, my name is Lindsay Miller, like Juan mentioned. Uh, Megan and I are both really excited to be with you today to share a little bit about um, HER's funding mechanism. So our goal today is really to share information on the funding mechanisms and funding priorities, and also highlight some ways um, that you all can engage with the program. So before we get started, just wanna highlight some of our nutrition educator competencies. So. Um, first, we'll describe the history and current roles of HER as we support programs related to health promotion and food security. Um, we'll also understand how to design a research proposal that aligns with HER's funding priorities and objectives. And finally, um, to communicate effectively in written forms with HER as a funder. Um, we do not have any conflicts to disclose. So I know this might be um, a little bit repetitive for some folks that are on the call that are familiar with healthy eating research, but um, figured we would just start from the beginning for all of those that are not familiar with, with the program. So HER is a national program of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. We are based at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Um, our mission is to support and disseminate research on policy systems and environmental strategies that promote healthy eating among children and advanced nutrition and health equity. So HER started in 2005 and we have funded close to 400 research proje projects to date. 
So all of our work at HER really falls into three main buckets that we describe as our program goals. Um, the first bucket is to build a research base um, for policy systems and environmental strategies. The second is to foster a vibrant, inclusive and interdisciplinary field of research and a diverse network of researchers. And the third piece is to communicate these research findings. So the first goal um, is the building of a research base. That's really, really our largest function. Um, so we do this to accelerate evidence-based and equitable solutions for improving children's diet quality, weight, and nutrition security. So the, the work that HER funds really centers on identifying these policy systems and environmental change approaches. I think you will hear Megan and I use that PSC phrase quite a bit in the presentation, um, but that really is the, the core focus of our funding through HER. Um, so the, these PSC approaches can occur at multiple levels, including organizational, community, state, national, and tribal. tribal. Um, so our grant making primarily focuses on children and adolescents from birth to 18 and their families with a priority focus on population and communities at highest, highest risk for obesity and nutritional disparities. Um, we do have 10 focus areas which are included on the right side of this slide. Um, these include early childhood, food retail, and other nutrition policies and programs. Uh, you can read about our various focus areas and past and current research we have funded in each of these focus areas on our website. So just to dive a little bit deeper into uh, policy systems and environmental change strategies. So um, as we've already noted, HER really specifically uh, focuses on um, research that centers on identifying PSC change approaches. And so we kind of define PSC approaches as strategies that modify settings where people live, learn, work, and play. Um, and these strategies go beyond programs that target individual behaviors to embed changes in communities and systems. And they're also designed to be more sustainable and reach a larger number of people. So I will now hand it over to Megan to highlight um, our funding mechanisms. Great, thanks, Lindsay. So as Lindsay said, we have two primary funding mechanisms through which all of our research is funded. One is a traditional call for proposals mechanism and the other is commissioned research. And with our calls for proposals, this includes our annual rounds of funding. So these are more general calls that get put out about once a year. And we might have a couple of parameters around the types of studies we are looking for, but generally they tend to be very open. Um, this year's call for proposals, we just had our concept paper deadline on April 5th. And so I can give you some more specific examples on that as we move into the next couple of slides. Um, but these, we also then have special solicitations, which tend to be more topic specific. So many of you may have seen in the past year or two, we had two different rounds of funding through a special solicitation focused on COVID related policies and programs and looking at evaluating many of those different federal nutrition program waivers or changes that were put into place. 
before that, our last special solicitation in 2020 that was put out was focused on um, targeted strategies in policies, systems, and environmental changes for reducing SSB consumption among young, young children and or increasing access to safe water and or consumption of safe water. So those, as you can see, are, are much more targeted, topic-specific areas. For our calls for proposals in general, these tend to be some of the larger studies we fund. They're still small in comparison to grants like NIH studies, um, but the funding amounts depend on the overall funding available. They typically range somewhere from about $200,000 to $500,000 for a study that ranges from 18 to 24 months. But for almost all of our calls for proposals, we also encourage folks to propose smaller projects that may involve secondary data analysis rather than primary data collection, for example. And that really allows us to maximize the total number of studies we are able to fund. So for example, with our current call for proposals where we just had the concept paper deadline on April 5th, in that CFP, we state that we have up to $2.5 million available. The maximum study amount for this round was $275,000. So if everyone comes in at the maximum amount, we can probably fund about nine studies in total. But if there are several ideas or enough proposals coming in at lower dollar amounts, that really increases the number um, and getting us up somewhere between 10 and 12 studies we could be able to fund. So with commissioned research, this bucket of funds is largely designated for more rapid response or shorter term research studies. So whereas that call for proposals typically comes out once a year or when we have special topic solicitations, that process from start to finish, you know, from launching a concept paper to announcing a finalist is about 10 months. In contrast, these commissioned research studies really can have funding decisions made in as little as four weeks. That's very rapid. Um, but more frequently, we're looking at, you know, in a, at about two to three months, we could have projects beginning. So these are smaller studies, typically up to $50,000 for 12 months. We can go higher than that, but I would say our average cost is about $50,000. We also tend to fund a lot of um, smaller papers or reviews, whether they're narrative reviews, systematic reviews, or scoping reviews. And those can range really from five to $10,000. And again, typically six-ish six months, up to 12 months for systematic reviews are very typical. And then we also will fund issue briefs or commentaries. So it's very typical for people coming out of other funded studies to have um, peer-reviewed publications that are submitting or manuscripts being submitted, but you don't always know what study you're going to conduct that's going to be extremely policy relevant or timely. And so perhaps you end up with these really incredible findings, but don't have a way to quote unquote translate that for a policy audience. That's where we can come in. And if it's aligned with our priority areas, we might be able to kick in a little bit of funding to create what we call um, an HER branded issue brief or commentary that will really take your peer reviewed manuscript and translate it into policy relevant language that is really digestible for policymakers or advocates to use in the policymaking process. So now I'm going to go into a little bit more detail on on our um, typical review processes. But as I said, this recent funding announcement, sorry, Lindsay, you can go back. 
that we just are, are getting ready to announce in a couple of weeks. So we are in the final stages of this. So this um, special solicitation on evaluating pandemic policies, we had up to one and a half million dollars that would be awarded as part of a two round process for that CFP. Again, each award up to a maximum of $250,000 in 18 months in duration. So again, as an example, if all projects were funded at 250,000, we would only be able to fund six projects. And this is partly why we encourage grants to come in under budget when possible. It really allows us to fund more studies. As I mentioned, we're in the final stages of this process. So this CFP was actually actually released in October of 2022. We have made our final funding decisions and are just going through final budgetary reviews and um, final letters of award and subaward packets and getting all of the contract paperwork in line. And once we have done that, then we will make the announcement. But we really just made those final funding decisions in about mid-March. And so even, you know, here from October to March, that was a pretty rapid process for us. That's a, a very fast moving special solicitation. And in this case, we are, those decisions have been made, we're kind of in the behind the scenes one to two month period of, of final reviews of all the paperwork before we can make announcements. So just giving you a little insight into what that, that looks like on the back end. So now to talk a little bit about this two-stage process. So we always start first with concept papers for these annual, uh, annual rounds of funding and or special solicitations. And that's really because we know that developing a proposal is a lot of work for you all as the applicant. It's also a lot of work for us to review, um, jump straight to reviewing a full proposal as opposed to starting with concept papers. So concept papers are typically three pages we always put out very specific instructions in terms of templates that we want you to follow. And these are always reviewed by HER leadership. So our program director, Mary Story, and I review every concept paper submitted. Um, RWJF senior staff, these are typically our program officers, and we have a variety of different program officers for different buckets of work with them. So the individual will shift based on that focus area. And then we'll call in as other external expert reviewers as needed as well. And we're always first doing an initial review to ensure that every concept paper submitted meets template requirements, that they are in scope as defined by the CFP, so really focused on the topics or priority populations indicated. And this initial scoping review is conducted by the HR team. We go through very carefully. We do kick proposals out if you submit something that is single-spaced, and we ask for it to be one and a half-spaced, and that's really in terms of fairness and equity, you can fit a lot more words on a three-page concept paper if you're single-spaced, first one-and-a-half space. So we, we are really strict with our template requirements down to the formatting. Um, and again, then we look at whether this was in scope. So we've had in the past, for example, special solicitations that were really intent on early childhood, looking at children ages zero to five. If you were focused beyond that, you would have been eliminated. Once we've narrowed it down to all those that are in scope, then we're really looking at the idea and the methods. And so some of the things I like to point out that we're really looking for is, is the idea innovative? Is it timely? Is it policy relevant? How is this potential project really going to contribute to the field? How is it going to build our knowledge base in this particular area? And then we're looking at each of the sections of the concept paper. So 
Do they explain the rationale for the project? Is there a strong research question? And what can we tell about the strength and feasibility of the research design here? So it's it's only three pages. That's a lot of info to get in there. Um, and you need to provide enough methods to give us a sense of whether what you're proposing is feasible. Can we tell sample sizes? Do we know, um, you know what data sets you're using? And so, as I mentioned, in terms of process, we first do that in and out of scope screening. Then we go through that thorough review. We then make recommendations to the foundation coming out of that process to say, here are the top proposals we recommend inviting to the next full proposal stage. And then collaboratively, they ask questions. We talk through those decisions and then make those final decisions together. At the full proposal stage, now we move into a more thorough external review process. And so a minimum of three external reviewers reviews every single full proposal submitted to the health eating research team. In addition, Mary and I again review every single full proposal submitted. RWJF senior staff will review them as well. And at this point, we're again reviewing to make sure does the full proposal meet all of the selection criteria listed in the CFP? Do they meet our template requirements? Have they submitted all of the required documentation? And we have then a series of questions that we give to our external reviewers that are really centered on the importance and potential for impact, the scientific rigor and approach, the equity implications. That is something that we are really striving to ensure that every study we're funding is being really intentional about how the proposed project can dig into issues of equity and reduce health disparities or identify disparities when possible. And for concept papers, we, or for CFPs, we sometimes hold review meetings. This process has shifted over the years or we have different processes we've used. So with our special solicitation, when we're just making funding announcements, rather than do a review meeting, we actually increased the number of reviewers and had five reviewers per proposal. That was to kind of pilot a new idea to see if we did more written reviews. How would that shift the process and the time required on the back end? Um, and you know, could this allow us to make funding decisions quicker? I will say all of these CFPs are a very labor-intensive process for the HER team to to manage. So we're always looking for ways to improve our process without sacrificing quality. I, I feel like we have a very strong review process and really wonderful reviewers that review for our program. So we definitely don't want to shift that at all. Um, other times we will have review teams. So they'll each proposal will be reviewed by three external reviewers, and then we'll have a review committee that meets and discusses every proposal. And that can be really helpful because especially if you get conflicting reviews or have questions that need to a little deeper digging into, you have more experts on the phone that can help you do that and you can work collectively through that process. Ultimately, that during that review meeting, the participants make recommendations about what they think are the strongest proposals for funding. The HR team takes all of that feedback into consideration in addition to the written reviews, and we again develop funding recommendations that go to the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and they have the final decision-making authority on what gets funded or what doesn't get funded. 
So one of the questions we get very frequently is what takes an idea from a concept paper to the full proposal stage? And there are a couple of things that we are always looking for, and I'll just reiterate or highlight those here. So in terms of policy relevance, the most promising concept papers have a direct tie to a policy or program at the local, state, national, or tribal level, where if the results show effects, these studies could directly impact the decisions made of agencies like USDA or FDA or really impact state policy decisions and or could be used in advocacy campaigns. And so we're really looking at, at how, what is that policy relevance? We certainly also fund small p policy relevant studies. So um, it, especially when you're thinking about food marketing, where things are more self-regulation or volunteer regulation, um, volunteer commitments, or retail policies where there are fewer ways to impact what retailers are doing. We are also interested in those kind of small P policies that will shift environments for consumers to make it easier for healthier choices to be made. But again, that is just that is one thing we're always looking for. Is that policy relevance clear? Has the applicant communicated to us why this issue is important and why it's important to be funded now? So related is that timeliness. If it's not policy relevant, you know, we have funded things like the development of tools before. Um, and then we just need you in, in place of that policy relevance to really do a good job of explaining to us, how is this relevant to the field? Again, why is it timely right now? How is this going to advance our knowledge base in this area? So maybe the development of this tool in and of itself doesn't have immediately immediate policy relevance, but it will be connected to these other policies down the road. Um, one, one example I can give there is we funded the original development of the WellScan tool, which was um, used, or sorry, the WellSat tool, the one that was used to measure implementation of local school wellness policies when they were first implemented. And so the development of that tool or that instrument itself wasn't something of immediately policy relevant, but knowing that schools were going to be required to do these local school wellness policies and implement them and have a way to evaluate them, there was this sort of immediate tie to policy relevance in the future. The other thing that we are really looking for is feasibility. So a there's a common problem with a lot of proposals trying to do too much. That tends to come out more at the full proposal stage than the concept paper stage. But with the right methods, simpler is sometimes better. In any case, you know, one of the reasons that a concept paper might not go to a full proposal stage is sometimes people will leave out really important details. So they'll talk about an analysis they plan to do or a national data set they plan to use, or they'll say, you know, I have this mixed method study. I, I'm going to do this quantitative analysis and this qualitative analysis where I'm going to do focus groups and surveys, but they never tell us their sample size that they're aiming to get or what that you know, you don't always need a power calculation, but how can we assess whether your sample size is enough to answer the research question? And then methodology, you know, 
frameworks. I mentioned having equity woven throughout study design. Those are things that are really important. You And again, you don't have a lot of space in the concept paper. So making sure that you are really using that limited space to write as clearly as possible, eliminate those excess words and really be as direct as possible. What are you going to do? How are you going to do it? Why is it important? Um, are, are really key items to focus on. And I'm sure you all will have questions about that and we can come back to those more during the discussion section. Great, so now I'm gonna highlight just a few resources that we have available for um, individuals once they are actually funded by HER. So we do provide support to grantees in several different ways. Um, the first way is through our communication support. So we believe that research does not end at the manuscript and uh, should be communicated to the appropriate audiences really to support change. And so this might include writing an issue brief or a fact sheet for policymakers. Um, it might include creating materials for healthcare providers or creating Instagram posts for parents and caregivers. Um, HER in recent years has started developing a lot more materials that are um, really focused for parents and caregivers. So that's kind of opened a new door for communications for us. Um, but we give HER grantees the resources they need to start thinking about these deliverables from the very beginning of their grant. Um, and as Megan mentioned, sometimes um, HER is able to support these communication efforts. Either um, we have a, a blog that's available on our website and sometimes HER staff will support in writing of those blog posts. Um, we can also provide financial support for developing HER branded briefs and other um, products that we believe really advance um, the ability to, to, for this research to make an impact. So the next piece is that we provide uh, quite a bit of equity resources. So as Megan mentioned, it really is a priority of HER to fund research on nutrition equity, but we also expect grantees to integrate equity into their research plan. Um, so really from beginning to end. So our equity resources and webinar series uh, highlight ways that grantees can apply an equity framework to their study, um, center communities in their research, and how to communicate findings by using really intentional language. So as mentioned here, we have an equity for researchers toolbox, and then we also have a webinar series. Um, and then finally, HER has multiple work groups. Um, I imagine there are some folks that are on the call today that are very familiar with our work groups, but um, these work groups are available for really all researchers that are in this space, including people that are not HER grantees. So these are national work groups that are consisting predominantly of researchers, but also include practitioners and advocates um, and agency employees, including USDA and CDC. So we do collaborate with um, NOPRIN, which is the Nutrition Obesity Prevention Research and Evaluation Network organized by CDC. Um, and with NOPRIN, we host three work groups. So these are the Healthy Food Retail, COVID-19 Food and Nutrition, and Early Childhood work groups. Um, but NOPRIN also has many work groups that uh, they, they host separate from HER, which I definitely encourage anybody um, interested to look into those. But HER recently, 
launched launched an early stage investigator work group. Um, we will be launching our third cohort of the ESI work group in August of this year. Um, and this is really a great opportunity for individuals that are within 10 years of their doctorate degree um, to engage with HER, to engage with current grantees, and also with the um, senior researchers that are involved with the HER network. So if, if that early stage investigator work group sounds um, of interest to you, I definitely encourage you to email me so I can make sure that you have access to the application once it is live this summer. So we will just um, conclude with a few ways that you all can engage with HER. I know sometimes it can be intimidating and maybe seem like um, funding agencies are not necessarily approachable and we definitely do not want that to be the case. So I think um, one of the, the best ways to engage with HER is to join an HER and, or an HER NOPRA and work group. Um, it's very common for researchers in a work group to collaborate and apply for a joint proposal to HER. Um, and this is really a great way to expand your research network and learn from other HER grantees. Um, Second, if you have an idea and want to know if it's something that HER would be interested in, um, you can always send us an email. So this is not something that we can do when we have an open call for proposals. We cannot necessarily provide feedback on an idea. Um, but if you are interested in learning more about HER's funding priorities and want to see if your idea would be of interest, then um, definitely don't hesitate to um, email us. We also strongly encourage folks to sign up for our funding alerts. So um, I can put that link in the chat um, once we are done, but um, we send out information about all of our call for proposals, including our annual call for proposals and our spe special solicitations through those funding alerts. Um, so that's a great way to stay on top of when HER has a funding opportunity. And then, of course, follow us on social media. We have Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and a website. So um, we have a lot of different platforms for you all to follow us and um, stay engaged. So I think that wraps up um, our presentation. I know we have quite a bit of time for Q&A. So hopefully Megan and I will be able to um, answer any questions you have and, and have a good discussion. Thank you. So audience can put your question on question and answer box. I don't see any questions yet, but I have a question. So a lot of times this uh, foundational funding opportunities, um, the methodology, why um, do you kind of seek for like a randomized controlled trial? It was community-based model. Uh, would the community should be the unit of randomization? So what the methods, the, what do you see the rigor in the methodology? It has to be randomized controlled trial or are there any other options that you particularly look for? It really depends on the nature of the research question you're trying to answer. So certainly we do get proposals in where there are randomized control trials. Someone is evaluating a new intervention. Um, a good example of some of the more recent ones, I would say that take that approach are especially when we're looking at 
linkages between nutrition policies or interventions and health policies. We have seen that's where we're getting a lot of proposals in looking at randomized control trials. But as we all know, it's it can be very difficult to do that in the field of nutrition science. And it's definitely not required that a study use an RCT framework. I actually feel like those with those proposals are in the minority of the ones we receive. We get a lot of policy evaluations, a lot of secondary data analysis, a lot of mixed method studies that have both a quantitative component, often looking at existing national data sets, whether it be NHANES or um, census data, you know, any, there's so many out there. Um, and as well as adding some qualitative components to contextualize the findings or dig deeper into the lived experience side, it has been a requirement of all of the studies we fund since the very beginning that there has to be some level of um, community engagement or experience in sort of embedded in the research design. So for example, if you're working on a study or evaluating school food policies, you should have somewhere in that project where a school food service director or parents or children, depending on what questions you're asking and what is the appropriate audience, should be embedded in some way. That could be as a community advisor. It could be um, as part of your research team. Again, it really varies. So there's no right or wrong answer, but that is something that's really important to us. And that can be anything from a full community-based participatory research design to having more of an advisory board. And again, what is most appropriate is really gonna depend on the research question and the study design. Okay, thank you. Uh, next question, how do we join the work groups? Yeah, great question. So um, if you would like to join one of the HER and NOPRIN work groups, I will put the link to that in the chat. Um, NOPRIN has several different pages on their website for each of these work groups, and there's information about the work group activities as well as the chairs and fellows. Um, Overall, for the most part, if you want to be involved in a specific work group, then you can email the chairs and the fellow of that work group, which that information is provided on the website. Um, but if you want to stay on top of all of the work groups, then you can sign up for the NOPRIN listserv, which is um, on that landing page of the link that I just sent you. If you are, sorry, I, there's like three different answers to this question, but um, if you are interested in joining a healthy eating research work group, um, like the early stage investigator work group, then please email me. So I will um, put my email in the chat as well. So everybody has that. Thank you. Um, another question from the same audience. I work for a nonprofit that is backbone organization for a statewide nutrition incentive program. We have currently working with an academic partner for our impact evaluation. To what extent is there funding to support this kind of academic NGO research partnership? So again, it kind of varies. That's not, there's no black and white answer to this question, but I will say whenever you, there are nonprofit partners or nonprofits looking to evaluate different programs, then the first thing I will ask them is what is the policy relevance? You know, again, HR is funding everything or 
everything we're funding has to have this PSC lens. So I, I, to, for us to justify funding it, we have to be able to ask, you know, how will the findings impact a policy systems or environmental change? Let's say the answer to all those questions are yes. Then the two mechanisms for funding are either, do we have an open call for proposals? In this case, technically no, because it just closed. And then the, the next step would be to email someone on the HER team or the HER inbox to say, I have an idea. Is this something for which there's funding available? And that would be going down that commissioned research pathway I talked about earlier. But again, in going down that partner or that, that lane, it's important to remember that those are smaller grants. So the maximum amount of funding is going to be somewhere in that like 50000 to $100,000 range. But the average amount of study was we fund are probably 50,000 or less and for six months or less. So it's really important to think about whether the question you're trying to answer in the design of your study would match those parameters. Mm -hmm. But it is, is important, I think for any NGO, or if you don't have a strong research team to be working with an academic partner and on the, the flip side for academic institutions to be thinking about who are those community partners, those are really important important things we look at. Next question is, is there any visa restriction? I guess the um, status of the uh, the investigators or grant submissions. So citizenship or uh, international status, who, has, who holds the, the different visa? So not necessarily. Um, we all of our large grants that go through a through our annual call for proposals, there has to be a prime institution receiving the grant. The grant cannot go to an individual as a co consultant or contractor. So as long as you are employed somewhere where you have a visa status, we leave that to your home institution to figure out those details. Um, if you wanted to author a paper for us where we would be doing more of a a smaller independent consultant contract or, or something along those lines, we definitely have funded people who are here on a variety of different types of visas. It just takes a, a deeper dive. We might have to ask you more questions or require more paperwork to be able to get all the documentation we need. For studies that we are funding, we are a domestic focused program. So everything we fund does have to impact policies, systems, environments in the U.S. we almost never fund anything that has a global focus with the exception being sometimes there are reviews or studies that you can say are going to have direct connections to informing U.S. policies. And in that case, we might make an exception, but it is a requirement that prime institutions be based in the U.S., that applicants be based in the U.S., and that the work really be focused on informing U.S. policy systems or environmental change strategies. Mm -hmm. Is there any consideration for funding projects that study the college student populations ages 18 to 22? Sorry, Lindsay, feel free to jump in. I'm monopolizing the answering here. Um, that is a tricky one. And so historically, when healthy eating research was started, we were first um, started in 2005, our primary goal was really looking at children and families. And actually our very first call, call for proposals was focused exclusively on the school food environment at the time. 
our our focus have expanded and changed over the, the years. However, we are still very much tasked with fo- funding research on children and families. So we have not funded a lot on food insecurity in the college population. However, we could if you're looking at food insecurity among parents who are also college students or looking, you know, those secondary, um, a lot of technical colleges, community colleges, um, really though, we're focused more on, on families and children under 18. So there has to still be some kind of connection there to these college students or parents of young children, or um, what is that kind of family unit with children of zero to 18 included? Thank you. I think that's all we see on the chat and question and answer box. Uh, I have another question uh, related to budget. When you talk about the uh, budget, uh, it would be good to have under budgeted so that uh, there are more projects can be funded. Would that be one of the categories? Like, would you prefer to have a lower budget if you can, it is feasible to complete all the activities or uh, it doesn't really matter. That's not the one of the categories or criteria for a review process. It's definitely not a criteria. I would say we just, it's something we really just encourage applicants to think about. So if you're proposing a secondary data analysis that you could do for $150,000, don't think of ways to you know, pad the budget to get to 275 when that is the maximum. We find that we fund a good mixture, variety of studies through these calls for proposals. And there might be a couple that we like and it, it, because they are good value as well. So that being said, we don't want you to under budget yourself. We don't want you to, to under estimate the costs of actually doing this study. But there are plenty of times where secondary data analyses, I think, can easily be done for 150000 or less. First, it's often the addition of the qualitative components and the other pieces that tend to beef those studies up. So there, I mean, similarly, I will say there are times where we love the study idea, but we look at something and think, this is not a $275,000 study, and that impacts whether, you know our, our opinion of it and may impact, depending on what the other pool is whether or not it gets a full proposal invitation. I think that's it uh, for the question and answer. The audience can um, email additional questions to Healthy Eating Research Team. So now I'm going to turn it back over to Rachel. Thank you for the presentation today. Very interesting. Um, Just a reminder that when I close the webinar, there's a survey and your feedback as an attendee is appreciated. And then watch for the email follow-up. It should reach your inbox by Thursday um, coming from Zoom. And then just a reminder, SNEB webinars are always posted on the website. We'll be back on Monday uh, for a Journal Club webinar. I mentioned that just yesterday's Journal Club was actually a healthy eating research project. So uh, it was an interesting tie-in for this week. Uh, And then my last reminder is that conference registration is open. 
you can lock in the lowest rate to attend conference if you register by May 1st. Um, and there is an option to register, but request an invoice. Um, that'll hold that low rate for you um, while you process payments. So again, thank you for joining us for the webinar today, and we look forward to seeing you back online soon.